0: Imagine a gaggle of Israelite boys, ancient Israel, they're frolicking along the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. They run and they jump and they make a lot of boy noises, and they pick up sticks as imaginary swords and they pretend to fight as the legendary warriors of Israel. They throw rocks into the lake and they argue over who's traveled farthest and they splash in the gentle waves that lap the shoreline. This group of boys is from the town of Bethsaida. They've run on ahead of their fishermen fathers who will prepare their nets on the shore and will soon launch out their boats onto the Sea of Galilee for a night of fishing. One of the Hebrew boys is named Simeon. His family lives a simple life in a rural region of natural beauty and fertility. Bethsaida is a long ways from the hustle and bustle of the capital city of Jerusalem, and it's a long way from the arid regions to the south and to the east in the land. Simeon's world is the glimmering lake, fertile fields boasting rich yields, trees and rivers and birds and wildlife. But the from all that would appear as we look at it, is not quite as isolated as it might seem. Just south, around the northwest elbow of the lake, is the luxurious and decadent Roman city of Tiberius. Simeon and his parents would never go to such a wicked and pagan city, but their boats As they set out, the fishermen into the sea can see the opulent structures and they know that there are many godless Roman soldiers and Roman officials that inhabit that city. And just to the north, an international travel route conveys caravans of traders from the north and the east southward, right past Bethsaida, down the coast to Caesarea on the Mediterranean Sea, and down further to Jerusalem and continuing on to Egypt. And so in some sense, the world passes by this somewhat forgotten spot on the Lake of Galilee. Simeon lives a simple life. He's going to marry a young woman from the nearby village of Capernaum, just a few miles away. And eventually, he'll come to reside here, and by all estimations, to live out his days in the hard but simple work of fishing on Galilee. As the boys wave goodbye to their fishermen, fathers who launch their boats into Galilee, the boys scurry home for the night, and little Simeon, as all of this is happening, has no idea that his destiny is not on the lake. His destiny is in Jerusalem. His destiny is on those imperial roads that will take him to far reaches of the empire and take him on the greatest mission that any man has ever taken. Simeon's life changed in early adulthood when a teacher came to town by the name of Jesus from nearby Nazareth. Jesus taught God's Word with accuracy and with authority. His message captured Simeon's heart. And Jesus' miracles confirmed that he was everything Simeon could hope. He was the Messiah of Israel. Simeon found it his duty and delight to become one of Jesus' twelve disciples. And marking his entrance into a life of conformity to Jesus' teachings and to Jesus' way of life, Jesus renamed Simeon Peter. Meaning, rock. That rock, this boy from Bethsaida and this fisherman from Capernaum would face vehement opposition for following Christ. It was no easy thing to follow Jesus. This was not launching a boat. To face the dangers of Galilee at night, although Jesus would put them to that as well. But this was picking up a cross on a one-way journey. It was letting go of your life. It was dying, in a sense. It was certainly a thrilling journey. It was a life-transforming one for Peter. This Galilean kid with a rural accent and fishing background would play a pivotal role on the front lines of God's history-altering story of salvation in Christ. Peter and his band of brothers would shake the very foundations of the ancient world. His opponents would put it this way, they've turned the world upside down. By the time Peter was seasoned enough to write two books of inspired text deep enough to thrill and baffle us to this very day, he had withstood years of withering satanic attacks against his faith. Peter had learned many hard lessons along the way. You remember, in self-dependent pride, he said to Jesus, I will never betray you. Everyone else on earth may, but not me. In acute biblical ignorance and serving Satan's purposes, he withstood Jesus' mission when he said, You will not die. On the night Jesus was betrayed, Peter slept when he should have kept vigil. He fought when he should have yielded, and he ran when he should have stood with Jesus. And on that bitter night, Peter towed the ledge, and he leaned over hell's yawning pit, when he cursed and insisted, I do not know the man. We're told in Luke 22 that Satan demanded to have Peter that night. But in his mercy, Jesus prayed. He prayed for Peter, and that made all the difference. His faith in shambles, having betrayed his Lord, Peter withdrew to Galilee and returned to what he knew, that was fishing. Being a disciple didn't work for him. He'd go back to fishing on Galilee. But you remember that there, on the shoreline where Peter frolicked as a kid, Jesus ministered to a broken man with shattered faith. And there Jesus restored Simeon Peter to rock-like faith. There Jesus restored him and not long after Jesus would ascend to heaven and we would find Peter not in Capernaum, not on the north shore of Galilee, but in the center of Jerusalem in the temple area. And there we find him standing before the highest authorities in Israel, before these powerful men who are determined to kill him if he doesn't stop speaking for Jesus. And what does he say? Those memorizing this week, what does he say? We ought to obey God rather than men. And you know what Peter and the disciples said and did They went on from that place and they continued to turn Jerusalem upside down with the message of Christ crucified and risen. There was a new boldness. There was a new authority. There was a new sort of faith in Peter's soul. Eventually, Peter would leave Jerusalem and travel with the message of Christ crucified and risen for the forgiveness of sins to places he'd only heard about as a child and probably some he never had heard about. And in the end, the enemies of Christ captured Peter. To them, Peter confessed that he knew the man. And not only did he know him, he loved him. Not only did he love him, he loved him more than life itself. And Peter laid down his life and was executed because he identified with Jesus Christ. when we pick up 1 and 2 Peter in our Bibles, we are reading the words, particularly as 2 Peter makes clear, we're reading the words of this seasoned man right before he dies for Christ. He says, it has been made clear to me, I'm about to die. And he gives us the gleanings of a man who had trusted in himself and fallen horribly, and the gleanings of a man whose faith was now solid to the point where he could follow Christ to death. And so in First and Second Peter, we pick up the words of a man who understood Satan's attack and how to resist it in the faith. Going back to our study of 1 Peter, we remember this graphic. Satan's attack on a three-fold strategy is false teaching, persecution, and godless living. Peter addresses this attack in these two books in a unique way. And as we as a church have completed our journey verse by verse through these two books... I'd like to consider them today as a whole. I know this is ambitious, but I'd like to do that, that we might feed on it, that we might marinate our faith in it, that we might think on this satanic attack and remember what we've learned over these months and let it filter deeply into our soul as we part ways as a church in this setting from these two great books. So let's prepare our minds to work. And let's consider the truth. First Peter. I invite you there. The first epistle of Peter, chapter 1. We've read a portion of this first chapter already here today, but remember in verse 1 that Peter writes, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the elect exiles of the dispersion, to scattered individuals, particularly in the northern reaches of the Roman province, of Asia Minor. He stresses their new identity as the spiritually reborn people of God. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has rebirthed us, literally, to a living hope. He has given us new birth to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God's gift of new spiritual life through faith in the death and resurrection of Christ results in our eternal, never-fading inheritance in the presence of our Lord. So if your faith in Christ is real, it will prove genuine under trial, verse 7 of chapter 1. It will result in final salvation, verse 9. And of those who have this kind of faith in Jesus, saving in Christ's saving grace, Peter can say of us, verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. You have met Christ. You know him in spirit. Though you've not yet seen him, you know him. Now this salvation is no afterthought, verses 10 and following indicate. In grateful response, then we should set our hope on the return of Jesus. This salvation has been prepared for from eternity past, and Christ will come again and bring all of it to conclusion. We should resist, then, godless passions that corrupt the world from which we've been rescued. Christ has rescued us from this world we should then live in distinction from it as we anticipate his return and the end of the salvation age verse 14 chapter 14. here's the implication as obedient children do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance but as he who called you is holy you also be holy In all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Jesus died, think on it, He died to secure for us an eternal inheritance. But He also died to liberate us from sin and transform how we live now. Verses 17 through 22 bring that out. He saved us to live pure lives. And to love his people, verse 22, this new life orientation, this purified, ransomed life of love, is the achievement of Christ's death and the transforming power of God's Word. This is what it accomplishes. So that he can say in verse 23, chapter 123, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. Now in chapter 2, Peter stresses the implications of our new identity in Christ. Many people stumble over Christ. How many do you know that embrace Him willingly, embrace their sin, and embrace Christ as their Savior? Many people are offended by Christ. They're not offended by Jesus the good man, not by Jesus the teacher, but by Jesus the Savior. That's an offense to many who stumble over that very concept But to us who have come to know Christ as Savior, chapter 2 verse 3 says that we have come to taste that He is good. And to embrace Him as our new identity. Not simply to gain insights from Him and to get help from Him on our way to heaven as we achieve heaven in our own strength. But rather our very identity is bound up in who He is. We become united with His death, united with His resurrection. He is our life. and so chapter 2 verse 9 look think of this our new identity Verse 9, chapter 2, You are a chosen race now in Christ. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you, have not, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. How should this thrilling truth influence our relationship to a world that rejects Christ? Verse 11, Beloved, then I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. There is an assault there that is ongoing against who we are in Christ. The passions that we have for what is wrong which come naturally to us, they wage war against our soul. Verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The world has, gives you long rope to sin. As long as you claim to be among them. But once you say, I identify with Jesus Christ, then they don't give you any rope at all. And Peter's saying, I don't care that they do. We should be living righteous lives because that's the life to which Christ has saved us. So live it out. Let them see it. Let them see that you have indeed been changed by Christ. The goal is that by verse 15, chapter 2 and verse 15, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. You've been liberated from sin. Live righteously. Live as servants of God. Liberated from the bondage of sin. Now, in bondage to Christ, we have the true freedom. Live it out. Express it. This new orientation will have a profound impact upon our relationships with unbelievers. Our new identity in Christ will transform every other relationship. And so he picks up in chapter 3 on the relationship between husbands and wives. Peter addresses the holy and winsome conduct of believing husbands and wives as they relate to one another in one of the world's most troubled relationships because it brings two people so closely together. Much sin can come out of that situation, but our identity in Christ will change the way we go about this. Wives with disobedient husbands, husbands who are believers as they relate to their wives, what does it look like? In verse 9, he provides otherworldly advice on how to handle people who wrong us. Verse 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. As we suffer wrong, we must remember, verse 12, that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Most people will not trouble us if we live holy lives because we will not be causing harm to them, but some will. And when they do, when they harm you for doing what is right, chapter 3, verse 14, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Don't fear what man can do to you, fear only what God can do. You live free of that fear, you live free of that trouble in your soul as people cause trouble to you. But, verse 15, chapter 3, in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, for it's better to suffer for doing good If that should be God's will, then for doing evil. And God may indeed will that you suffer, as He willed that Christ suffer on the cross. Verse 18 is another articulation then of the substitutionary atonement of Christ's death. We have two great statements in this book, chapter 2, 24, 25, and chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered. Your new new identity is in Him, So as you suffer, you'll suffer a certain way, but let's take this deeper. He also suffered once for sins. He's not being sacrificed every Sunday. He suffered once. The righteous for the unrighteous that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, made alive in the Spirit. He died physically and rose from the dead, the righteous dying in the place of the unrighteous once to bring us to God. This is the wonder of our salvation in Christ, the wonder of our new identity. And so Peter reiterates to his suffering believers, chapter 4 and verse 1, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Suffering abuse because we do right and believe the truth is to be expected. And preparing for this reality starts with how you think, with the way that you read and interpret life. Your new relationship will fuel desires to live a godly life, which will confuse people and fuel their animosity toward you verse 4 chapter 4 5 and following but as these verses indicate we should not fear man but live with spiritual zeal as we anticipate our final accounting before the lord this is the way it's going to be as you're delivered from this godless world it's just going to be like this you have been radically rescued And when you bump into people who have not been radically rescued and love their bondage, they're not going to understand you. And the more persistent you are, the less they're going to like you. And if you get in their way, they may make life very miserable. Stand true. Follow Christ. Do what is right. as we anticipate our final accounting before the Lord who sees all things we do so in order that verse 11, chapter 4 verse 11 in order that at the end of the verse in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever, amen beloved He says, verse 12, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. I I just can't imagine Peter writes that without seeing himself in the courtyard of the the, the, uh, Jewish officials at the trial of Christ. Don't be surprised. But... Verse 13, rejoice. That's otherworldly. Rejoice. Insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. There was a day Peter did not do that. And he knew there was a day coming when he would have the opportunity to do so. To be glad. To share Christ's sufferings that you may rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Verse 15, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. In a shame-based culture, that was quite a statement. Do not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Your identity is in this name. Stand. And so Peter summarizes verse 19, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. Put yourself in His hands. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. He trusted God. Trust the Lord as you face these serious trials and oppositions. Chapter 5 of 1 Peter. Peter also instructs the believers then in their relationship to the shepherds of the assembly. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. And he also exhorts others in the assembly, exhorting all of us, beginning at verse 6, that we are to be humble but under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And all of this is Satan's attack. He knows this. So, verse 9, resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You're not experiencing anything unusual. This is the way it is. This is the new normal for those whose identity is in Christ. Verse 10, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I don't know what that means, but I can't wait. I don't know what it meant for them, what it means for us, but it's saying, God has you covered. Endure. Persevere. Stick with it. Trust Him to the end. To Him, verse 11, be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. The dominion. He is the Lord. Not the Roman officials. Not the Jewish people who despise you because of your faith in Christ. Their Messiah. He has all dominion forever and ever. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. Trust Him. Now Peter authors then a second book. Maybe we should have here like a, a video or something. A commercial break. Um, a Costco commercial or something like that, right? Transitioning into now. This is ambitious, I realize. But I, I, I trust, by God's grace, the second book, and we'll go with bit quicker, it's shorter. Uh, there's depth here. There's importance here for us. Let's filter it a bit further, and we'll tie it all up at the end. But in this second book, perhaps to the same people, we cannot know that for sure, it addresses also Satan's attack on our faith. It shares the emphasis on godly living with First Peter. But second Peter lays heavier stress on the attack of false teaching. False teaching, false teachers were twisting the Scriptures, probably mostly the writings of the Apostle Paul, and they were bringing these teachings to these recipients of the letter. They claimed that Jesus would not return. There would be no final accounting before God, and the implication was, if not the direct teaching of these false teachers, you can kind of live however you want because there's no one to hold you accountable. This is as saved as you're going to get, there is no final accounting before God. Christ will not come back. This is it. We're, sort of, so to speak, living in heaven. It was all intended, whether they understood it or not, to cover their own sensual desires, to justify their sinful behavior. So in his first letter, Peter counsels us to withstand the withering attack of Satan against our faith by means of persecution. In the second letter, Peter warns us to stand strong against the attacks of false teachers against true doctrine. Remember the triangle. Both of these books, strong emphasis on morality, on how we live. First Peter, emphasis on physical persecution. Second Peter, emphasis on false doctrine. So as in his first book, Peter lays heavy emphasis first on our new identity in Christ. You see a theme rising here out of everything that Peter says, an identity that's shared with all believers. Second Peter chapter one verse one. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, probably the apostles by means of the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You have an equal standing with us as the apostles. Verse 3, "...His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises." so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Notice it's through the word, through these great precious promises, that we become partakers of a new life. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Christ rescues us from our bondage to sin, and God's promises empower us to live godly lives. In response, we should exercise our new nature like newborn colts exercise their legs. You've seen the picture if you haven't seen it in person. That newborn colt rising up, wobbly, wiggling, unsure of itself, but saying these things are here for a reason and I'm going to put them into use. So it is with our Christian walk. The faith that we have been given is like a muscle to exercise and develop over time. You have this new life in Christ. You have all that pertains to life and godliness. You have the divine nature now in your union with Christ. Walk. Put it into practice. Verse 5, For this reason, he says it this way, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and so forth. Verse 10, therefore, brothers, verse 10 of chapter 1, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. At verse 16, Peter stresses that Christ will return, whatever the false teachers say, a truth supported by Christ's transfiguration, which Peter himself witnessed. Christ's return is also a truth confirmed by God's written word, which finds its origin in none other than God Himself. Verse 21. one twenty-one. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We've got to recognize there is truth that God has inspired. There is written text that the Holy Spirit has directed individuals to write down and record for us, to communicate to us, in contrast to this received, authoritative truth, chapter 2, verse 1, false prophets also arise among the people just as there will be false teachers among you. They're going to secretly bring in destructive heresies. In chapter 2, Peter now delivers a scathing rebuke against the false teachers who were trying to persuade the churches that Jesus would not return, and therefore it did not matter how, how people lived. In verses 2 through 10, Peter warns us that these false teachers are convincing, they are driven by greed, they are controlled by fleshly passions, and they are destined for God's judgment. In verses 10 and following, Peter explains that the false teachers are enslaved to sin, they are moral fools, and they leave their hearers dry and empty. Ultimately, they're like dogs returning to their own vomit. They claim to have been rescued from their sin by Christ. Then they take the Christian life, they take the Christian truth, they twist it to say what they want, and they go right back to their debauchery, now under the guise of a Christian teacher. And so they get filthy rich, they draw people down, they pump up their egos, and they deflate their souls, leaving them dry. I absolutely assure you, Peter says, Jesus will come back in his kingdom. I've seen the taste of it. On the Mount of Transfiguration, I saw it. I saw the initial invasion of the kingdom into this world in that moment in a sense in its fullness as in the transfigured Christ it's coming I know it will be here chapter 3 and verse 3 he says then knowing this first of all you can count on this remember what he said in the first book you can count on this you will be persecuted and now he says you can count on this as well Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. This argument assumes the supernatural realm will Never invade the natural realm. That's what the false teachers were saying. This was, they, were, they were basing everything on this assumption. But this is not the case. Creation is an evidence, and the Noahic flood is certainly another evidence that God can invade this world. We should understand that the delay of Christ is a display of God's patience with sinners as he waits for them to repent and to be saved, verse 9. That's what's going on here. Chapter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies or the elements of the world will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. There will be a conflagration that burns everything, consumes and purifies it to its basic elements until the Spirit of God hovering over the molten sea will do as he did when he hovered over the watery sea and recreate from those same elements a new heavens and a new earth. Well, if you get that, I mean, it's got to cause you to tingle a little. And if you get that verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought we to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting. We have a position of waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt and burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting. We're waiting. Don't follow these false teachers. Don't get carried away with their folly. Verse 17, don't do it. Rather, get busy with this. Verse 18, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Grow. Grow in grace. Continue to persevere in the faith. Until we meet Christ and someday walk on that new earth, under new heavens. Well, what have we gained from all of this? This is a bit unusual for us to cover this much text, and it may be difficult for you to work through it. I hope for those of us that have been through both books, verse by verse, that this allows us to... uh, remind ourselves of the truth that God has revealed here. But I wonder, as we've been through this, what is God doing with Eden Baptist Church? What is He showing us? What have you learned? What have you gained? What have we gleaned from the writings of the Apostle Peter? What we have learned from a man whose faith what have we learned from a man whose faith was subjected to the full fury of Satan's faith-smashing assault strategy? Yet a man who persevered to the place of execution. Now we know, what we know in Scripture about Peter, we know Peter's victory was not owing to his unusual resolve. I have a feeling he probably was a fairly strong kid that got his way with people, but that's not what got him to stand for Christ, was it? It really got him into trouble. It wasn't his personality. It was not his upbringing. It was not the power brokering political ties of his family. First and 2 Peter reveal God's faith-preserving strategy that equips the believer to withstand satanic attack, a strategy that Peter followed and communicates to us, a strategy he learned through time, through failure, through disappointment in his own life, but by the restoration of Christ, he figured it out. And I don't mean to say that it's simply a matter of getting our ducks in a row intellectually. But Peter went through this process of faith deepening resolve and came to trust in God's power working through him. And I think at the heart of it all, if you get this kind of emblazoned in your mind, Satan's strategy on this graphic, I think what we see in response to it in Peter's writings is that at the center of it all, in the Christian response, is our new identity in Christ. Go through these books sometime and think about my new identity in Jesus, how I see myself uniquely positioned in Christ. It's amazing, amazing truth. And we've, we've considered a fair amount of it here today, but that's at the heart of it all. I am a new man in Christ. And so as I respond to Satan's attack, it doesn't come from my personality. It doesn't come from my resolve. It doesn't come from my upbringing. It comes from the fact that I have died with Christ to sin and I'm alive with Him in His resurrection life. At the heart of it all is this new identity in Christ. Christianity is a creed. It is a belief in certain facts on one level, but it is far more than a ideas it is spiritual rebirth how do i receive this new birth it is given to us through identification with jesus death to pay sin's penalty as my substitute and through identification with his life securing resurrection it comes through faith and trust in what christ has done once and for all to save his people Our salvation identifies us as God's chosen people and it equips us with all that we need for life and godliness. We don't get it in pieces. We don't get it in stages. It comes to us like new birth. It is a new spiritual birth. Apart from that new birth, we have nothing but religious deeds and false teaching, probably. But with it, We have a new identity in Christ. It transforms how we see ourselves and how we see life. So, I consider at the heart of it, I have been born again by God's Spirit. I have died to sin. I'm fully equipped in Christ to withstand attacks against my faith and to live a holy life. I depend not on who I am, but on who He is. When we do that, we center in truth, and it displaces false teaching. We cling to the truth. In His inspired Word, we know that God reveals life-giving, life-transforming truths and eternal promises on which, which sustain our spiritual life and fit us to stand against false teaching that destroys spiritual life. In my new identity in Christ, I highly value truth. And I hold tenaciously to what God's Word has revealed. That truth pushes aside false teaching. It helps me withstand Satan's attack. It's not always easy to understand God's Word. Second Peter chapter 3 Scripture can be twisted by people. Sending us off into wrong paths. But these truths and promises are the very words of God who by His Spirit conveys the realities which will place our spiritual lives on solid ground. Hold to the truth. There is truth. It is absolute. It has been revealed by the Spirit of God and we must come to cling to it with all of our heart and soul. We don't have it all figured out. Every one of us is undoubtedly off track in some places in our life, but love the truth. This is how we withstand Satan's faith-crushing assaults. With God's faith-preserving strategy, we hold to the truth. Secondly, we persevere when facing persecution. For the born-again believer in Christ, suffering persecution is the new normal, and I must learn to persevere through it by following Jesus' example of suffering. I should anticipate opposition to my faith. The more faithful I am, the more that I speak for Christ, I, I can anticipate in whatever culture I'm in to receive more opposition. I keep quiet about my faith. People are happy with that. Keep it private. Just don't bring it into the public sphere. Don't talk to me about it. But when I stand for Christ, I will receive persecution. We identify with the suffering church throughout the world as well. We recognize that this is how it works. We can rejoice to know that persecution indeed is a strategy that Satan uses at the same time that God uses it to purify and prove the authenticity of our faith. How do you know if your faith is real? One of the things is how do you stand when you're opposed. Identify with Christ, crucified, suffering. Though revile, does not revile in, in turn, but entrusts himself to him who judges justly. Stand your ground. Don't be afraid. Don't be intimidated. Don't run. Stand in Christ. And that new identity will thirdly address that third assault of satan and that is to replace immorality in our passions of the flesh with holiness delivered from moral darkness by the death and resurrection of christ we have been saved to live holy lives of moral beauty and distinction from the world god is anxious that we become holy as he is holy God cares very much how the world perceives the pattern of our lives. He he recognizes they're not going to like it. He recognizes sometimes they'll accuse us of doing wrong, but He wants them to see in us moral beauty. He saved us for that reason. He's anxious that we in our lives display the rescue from sin and the moral beauty His atoning salvation secures for us in this life. As important as it is that we not deny Christ in the face of opposition, it is equally important that we test the genuineness of our faith by the way that we live. Do you see in your life God is rooting out sin? It's slow, I struggle, I fall. But I can see that my new identity in Christ is having an effect. It's changing me. This is what Christ wants. Not one of us could guarantee, not one of us here, could stand up here and so foolishly say, if I was put in a place of persecution, if I was facing death for Christ, I would stand. I know that I would not betray Him. In light of Peter's example, we'd be fools to do that. None of us could say what we would do under severe persecution. The guns to my head, what would I do? I don't know. All that we can know is that we are being equipped as we nurture deep affections for Christ and as we center our new identity in Him. And that's the project we've been through as a church. That's what we're working through as we seek the purifying Word of God together. We can think about these truths we can be affected by them we can learn from the Peter who betrayed Christ and who grew in his faith to die for Christ we cannot know the future we cannot know our own hearts but we can know the truth we can live the truth by God's grace and by his grace we can thus be equipped to stand for Christ to the end and so while persecution I may not know what I would do. I can know how I'm pursuing the truth. And I can know how I'm pursuing godliness. And as one of our persecuted friends has instructed us from another country, I've been so helped by his statement. He's been in prison for Christ, and he said, it's not hard. It's not hard to face persecution. What's well, hard is to live for God. Live for him and persecution won't be that hard. Fight the flesh, right side of our graphic. Live a holy life. Embrace the truth, the top of the graphic. And as you come to that place where someone says, do you know the man You'll say because of the truth that you hold dear and the life of faithfulness and godliness that is flowing from that new identity in Christ, I know him. And I'll stand for him. And I'll die for him if he calls me to do so. I trust by God's grace and for his glory that these words will purify and strengthen Our souls, that it will fertilize our faith and that it will equip us for whatever we're going to be facing in the days ahead. The fight for faith never ends until the faith becomes sight. So know that in these areas, you will be attacked, I will be attacked, our church will be attacked. There will be an assault. On the truth of God's revealed word, there will be a call from this world to live ungodly lives, catering to passions that are sinful, and there will be undoubtedly opposition. We prepare for it by saying, We are a holy people, we are a nation of God's priests, we are the people of God. And in Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, we find our hope, our life, our identity. And we'll go where he takes us and we'll stand against whatever Satan throws at us by the grace of the Lord alone. Let's come to know who we are in Christ. And for those that have opportunity to gather with other believers today, many of us in home groups here following this service. Let's work this out. Who are we? What does it mean? Where are we headed? Father, we give great thanks for this book, for its word of conviction to us, for its hope, its help, and for the knowledge that we have been reborn by Christ through faith in the Gospel, being equipped with everything that pertains to life and godliness. We thank You that this is the life to which we've been called. Again, I pray for anyone that has not tasted and seen that the Lord is good. They've not come to apprehend the wonder of Christ's singular and final and fully sufficient death in the place of sinners. I pray that you'd rescue them from sin and from their blindness and bring them today to the wonder of the gospel in simple faith, trusting what Christ has done. Lord, for those of us who know you as Savior, I pray that our identity would be rooted in who Jesus is. We've experienced enough, we've sinned enough to know that there's nothing in our flesh. But we have come to love the one we've not seen, and we praise you that He's given us new life. And in that new identity, I pray that you would take us forward in faith, in hope, in love, and transform your people through Christ. We pray, Amen. There, there is so much in what we've heard this morning to meditate on, to reflect upon, and. May we all do that today and throughout the week, but let's start now and in silence, reflect in our own hearts on the truth we've heard. Please stand and let's do that together for a few moments in silence. We have been called by Christ's own glory and goodness, and in Him, in Him we have all that we need for life and godliness. We have Christ, and He's enough. Let's sing together, reflecting on this truth. I once was lost